I began a uh, new sermon series last Sunday entitled, Excelling in Our Love for One Another. Uh, I've taken this opportunity first to commend this church family uh, for the amazing way uh, that you consistently demonstrate a love for one another. But at the same time, uh, I want to uh, encourage us to excel even more. Uh, this is an area where we can never say that we have arrived. There's always room uh, for greater growth. So what we're doing in this series is just basically walking through the one another passages in the New Testament to be taught how we are to love one another. Last Sunday, we looked at three one another passages in Romans chapter 12 that taught us how to practice love uh, within the church family. And today we're going to look at three more one another passages uh, that are found in Romans 14 and Romans 15. So like I say, I, I hope I can finish this message today, get all this in. I won't force it, but uh, we'll see what we can do. So I'll try to stick pretty close to the uh, sermon notes, and so uh, look with me there at the uh, introduction. In the Bible, God has established commands and moral absolutes, which are definite, clear, and obligatory for every believer to obey. Where God's Word has clearly spoken, there is no room for debate, compromise, or tolerance. We need not pray about it. We need only to obey the Lord. Of course, I'm not meaning we shouldn't pray. We need to pray to be given the grace to obey God, but not in terms of discerning His will where He has spoken clearly. In these areas, uh, Christians are encouraged to lovingly exhort, rebuke, and reprove one another, and if necessary, even discipline one another as prescribed in the Scriptures. This is not judging one another in a sinful manner, because in these areas, the Word of God, what? Has already judged. But look at that next paragraph, and this is the focus today of the message. But there are also many areas where the Bible gives the believer freedom to follow the dictates of his own conscience under the Lordship of Christ. And notice, I'm not saying we're without guidelines. Uh, we have freedom to follow the dictates of our own conscience, but under what? The Lordship of Christ, that our goal would be to please Him. But moving on in that statement, in these areas... It's obvious believers develop different opinions, different preferences, and lifestyle choices. And just pause right there. Now, I can't give you an exhaustive list, but we're talking about things like the way we dress, uh, fashions, uh, hairstyles, where you wear your hair long or short, or if you have hair at all, uh, you know, uh, curly or straight. Uh, we're talking about things like entertainment. Uh, the TV that you watch, the movies you go to, how about theater, how about the concerts that you would uh, attend, how about the issue of dancing, how about the issue of uh, drinking wine uh, to, to moderation, not to abusing it, uh, issue of tattoos, body piercings, uh, the possessions you have, the luxuries, the home, we could just go on and on and on and on. Now, again, moving on with the statement, sadly, uh, this has become a battleground for much infighting and division in the body of Christ. Since we do come to different positions and opinions, 
uh, often we fight over these issues. We tend to believe our position is the correct one, and we try to change the minds of those who differ instead of loving one another unconditionally. Now, again, keep in mind throughout this whole message, we're talking about areas where God has given freedom to follow the dictates of our own uh, conscience, non-essential areas, preferential areas. And then that next statement, but we need to realize when we fail to demonstrate a love for one another greater than our difference in preferential issues and instead create discord in division, we damage the church's credibility and we render our witness ineffective before the eyes of a watching world. So the question we seek to answer in this message is, how do we demonstrate a love that's greater than our differences in these areas where God has given us freedom and where we inevitably come to different positions? And the answer is found in Romans chapter 14. All the way through Romans 15, and correct that, you can just say verse 7. We're just going to go through verse 7, which is, naturally divided. In other words, this large section can be naturally divided into three sections. And each of those three sections contains a one another verse that sort of sums up the argument of that particular section. So uh, look with me now at that uh, first section, which the focus is what love does not do. In other words, when we come to these areas where God is given freedom, we come to different positions Uh, As believers, this is what love does not do, and it is summed up by the one another passage in verse 13. Let us not, what? Judge one another anymore. So, look at uh, four points that we see here in this section that will help us learn how to love one another. First, love does not focus on differing preferences but on common spiritual parentage. In other words, here's the point. In areas where God has given freedom, as I've already mentioned, it is obvious that believers who are brothers and sisters in the same family, with the same heavenly Father, that we will develop different preferences. And God says that's okay. It's really okay. In other words, God's goal for the church has never been uniformity, where we all dress alike, think alike, and act alike. God's goal is unity in the midst of diversity by learning a love that is greater than our differences. And this is why we need to be careful not to express a judgmental or critical attitude in these areas where God has given freedom, because that's only going to bring what? Division to the family of God. We don't want to have this attitude. Believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else. Feel as I feel, think as I think, eat as I eat and drink as I drink, look as I look, do as I do. Then I'll have fellowship with you. And we laugh at that, but sadly that is the attitude that has destroyed many of churches Uh, throughout church history, even to this day. Now, uh, listen to Romans 14, 1 through 3. Now, before I read these verses, I just want to give you the background so you understand. And also, I'm going to be reading these verses, and I thought this would help 
from a little more contemporary translation. I'm going to use a New Living Translation, which I believe is a very good translation, and uh, I think it will uh, help us in our understanding. But here's the issue that's being addressed, the specific issue where God had given them freedom that was threatening to divide the church. And it was over the issue of eating meat. Uh, the primary issue was this. In pagan worship, uh, it involved sacrifices. And um, they would uh, typically take uh, the uh, uh, cheaper pieces of meat and use them as a sacrifice. And the best pieces of meat they would sell on the open market. And the question among Christians was, is it okay to buy that meat and eat it that has been associated with pagan worship, with worshiping demons? And keep in mind, in that pagan worship, uh, it not only involves sacrifices, but most of the pagan worship uh, dealt with temple prostitutes where there was all sorts of sexual perversion. Keep in mind that many Gentile believers... This is what they had come out of. They had been totally enmeshed, controlled, in bondage to this. So you can easily see when they were converted and brought out of that to walk in righteousness with Christ, they wanted to stay as far from it as they could. And many of them had the idea, hey, if we buy that meat, that's like we're back participating in that demon worship. And they even were afraid that if they ate the meat, that they would sort of open themselves up for a satanic influence and control. And then, of course, there were other beliefs that said, no, wait, wait a minute. God says everything is clean. We, we have the freedom uh, to eat that meat. We say, and, folks, this became a huge clash in the New Testament church, a monstrous clash that could have uh, really uh, divided uh, and damaged the church in an irreparable way. And it's one that Paul had to often address. He does not only here in Romans, but also in, uh, in especially in uh, 1 Corinthians a as well. Uh, this was an issue that had to be addressed by the uh, Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, dealing with uh, Jews and Gentiles uh, relating uh, to one another. So that's the issue. So on one side you had meat eaters for Jesus, and on the other side you had vegetarians for Jesus. And uh, they, they were fixing their position. And, of course, those that uh, did not have the freedom to eat meat, what would they do toward those who did eat it? Boy, they would condemn them. They would criticize them. They would say, you're wrecking your life spiritually. You're playing with, with demons. You're playing with fire. And you're going to be destroyed, and this is wrong. And then, of course, the folks that had freedom to eat the meat, they would look at those who had a much more narrow position and they would look upon them with contempt and with disdain. And it was almost like, why don't you just go and form your own church so we can all live comfortably and enjoy the freedom and the liberty that God has given us. And again, it created great infighting. Now, that's the background, and notice what Paul says. Let me just read this from the New Living Translation. Accept other believers who are weak in faith, he's talking about those that have that narrow view that they cannot eat, and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience 
will eat only vegetables to make sure that he doesn't participate again from what they saw as pagan worship. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do. Why? Here's the key. For God has accepted them. You can almost sum up uh, these uh, three verses by the first three words and then the last five. Accept other believers with the first three words. Accept other believers. Why? Because God has accepted them. Therefore, as we learned last Sunday, and those three one another's we looked at from Romans 12, regardless of coming to different positions on these issues, we are to remain devoted to one another in brotherly love. That's what Paul is saying. Not only do we remain devoted to one another in brotherly love, we're to give preference to one another in honor. And we're to have the same mind towards one another. What is that mind? The mind of Christ that does nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with lowliness of mind, with humility, views others, even that person that has a different opinion than me, more important than me, where I'm not looking out for my own interest, but the interest of others. And I'm loving them sacrificially, even as Jesus loved me. Look at the second, uh, second point there. Or the first point. Uh, there are, three, there are uh, four points that we see in these three verses. First, love does not impose standards on others in preferential uh, matters, but gives God room to direct their lives. I'm sorry, this is verses 4 and 5. That just sort of sums that point up. Love does not impose standards on others in preferential matters, but gives God room to direct their lives. Listen to these verses. Who are you? Now, again, folks, as we go through this, think of an issue that's a hot button for you. You know, maybe you don't think you should touch a glass of wine. Maybe you got a brother or sister sitting next to you. They think it's okay to drink a glass of wine at a meal in, in moderation as long as they abuse. Maybe somebody believes it's okay to, to dance. You don't believe it is okay to dance. I mean, we can just go on and on. You can pick your issue. You can pick your, your poison. And Paul says, who are you to condemn someone else's servant? I mean, are they your servant? No, they're, of course, they're God's servant. Their own master. Jesus will judge whether they stand or fall, and I love this, and with the Lord's help, they will stand and receive his approval. And he's referring to both camps. I have the ability to enable them to stand, to find my approval. In the same way, some think one day is more holy than another day, while others think every day is alike. You should each be fully convinced that whatever day you choose is acceptable. So again, what he's driving home is that we're not to impose standards on others in preferential matters, but we're to give God room, their master, to direct their lives, to bring them along, to change them. Even that issue of eating meat, we know from the Scriptures they had the freedom to do it, but many didn't see that freedom, especially because of their backgrounds and the struggle they had. And what Paul is saying is you need to be patient with these brothers and sisters. You don't need to jump on them. You need to be sensitive to them and let them grow at the pace God brings them on and, uh, and trust that he has the ability to work in their lives as well as your life. Look at the, uh, 
next point that we see in verses 6 through 9. Love does not strive for uniformity in externals, but unity of heart in pleasing the Lord. Love does not strive for uniformity in externals, but unity of heart in pleasing Christ the Lord. Listen to verses 6 through 9. Those who worship the Lord on a special day, why do they do it? They do it to honor Him. Those who eat any kind of food do so to honor the Lord, since they give thanks to God before eating. And those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to please the Lord and give thanks to God. For we don't live for ourselves or die for ourselves. If we live, it's to honor the Lord. And if we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and rose again for this very purpose, to be Lord both of the living and of the dead. In other words, he's saying, open your eyes. Yes, you've come to different positions. You've come to different opinions on these issues. But the motive is the same, your desire to honor God, your desire to please God, whether you have the narrow view or the more liberal view. Again, on these areas where God is given freedom, these preferential, non-essential issues. And notice, four times in this passage, he said, the motive is what? For both groups, to honor the Lord. Twice, he says, to give thanks to God, and then once, to please the Lord. Look at the next truth that we see in verses 10 through 13. Love does not assume a position you are not qualified to fill, but lets God alone be the judge. Who made you the judge? Who made you the Lord of the church? Listen to verses 10 through 13. So why, why do you condemn another believer? Why? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For the scripture says, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bend to me and every tongue will declare allegiance to God. Yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. So let's stop condemning each other. So that is what love does not do. He says, again, in these areas where God is given believers freedom to follow the dictates of their own conscience where we come to different positions in those areas we're not to impose uh, standards on one another but we're to give God room to direct each other's lives we're not to strive for uniformity where we all look alike think alike act alike but we're to find unity in what that heart motive to please God regardless what our position might be And we're not to assume a position you're not qualified uh, to fill. uh, But let God alone uh, be the judge. Now, look at the second point, what love does. And this is the section, Romans 14, beginning at verse 13b, all the way through the end of the chapter. And the one another passage here that just sort of captures the theme of what love does do in, in these areas is verse 19. Pursue the things which make for peace and building up of one another. Now, this is a very long section, and and I do not have time to expositionally go through that, but let me read the verses, and then you'll notice in your notes I sort of give you a, a summary statement of this section. But here's how this section reads. So let's stop condemning each other, decide instead... To live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. I love what God does here. He says, you're focusing on that person that differs with you. 
and you're either condemning them or you're holding them in low esteem and, and disdain. He says, take your eyes off of them. Start examining your own life. Start examining your own heart in terms of how you relate to others and make sure that you're not putting a stumbling block in the lives of others. But you're learning to love, a love that's greater than our differences. And then verse 14, he says, I know and I'm convinced on the authority of Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. But if someone believes it is wrong, then for that person it is wrong. And if another believer is distressed by what you eat, you are not acting in love if you eat it. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. Now, in this passage, let me just pause right there. He's not saying that you can't enjoy your liberty, but you need to enjoy it with discretion. What he's saying is, don't flaunt your liberty in the face of a brother or sister that differs with you in this area. Don't try to pressure them, push them to conform to your position. Be sensitive to them when they're around. When they're around, don't exercise the liberty. Show deference to them. Give preference to them in honor. Remain devoted to them. Have that mind of Christ who did not please himself, but sacrificed himself to please us. He goes on and he says, Then you will not be criticized for doing something you believe is good. For the kingdom of God, and I love this, is not a matter of what you eat and drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God, and others will approve of you too. So then, let us aim for harmony or peace in the church and try to build up each other. Don't tear apart the work of God over what you eat. In other words, don't let these areas where God's given freedom these preferential issues where we come to different. Don't let these things, these type of things, uh, tear up the work of God. Remember, all foods are acceptable, but it is wrong to eat something if it makes another person stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble. You may believe there's nothing wrong with what you're doing, but keep it between yourself and God. Again, Enjoy your liberty, but enjoy it with discretion. Again, don't flaunt it. Don't try to pressure others into your position. Blessed are those, he says, who don't feel guilty for doing something they have decided is right. But if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you are sinning if you go ahead and do it. For you are not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe is not right, you are sinning. Now look at the summary statement. Love enjoys freedom. And preferential issues, but never flaunts its freedom or pressures others to conform in order to feel accepted. Love is more concerned with advancing God's kingdom by displaying the righteousness and peace and joy of the Holy Spirit than insisting on its own rights or winning the argument dealing with preferential issues. True freedom is the ability to choose what is best and the ability to do what one ought to do, not simply what one wants to do. Therefore, there must always be a willingness to limit, limit liberty when it would be best for my spiritual benefit, the good of others, or to maintain unity in the family of God. 
Now, one of the most, I think, valuable parts of this message is the next section. Four questions that I, believe, I think every believer needs to ask before exercising liberty. In other words, just because I have liberty, just because I have freedom, it may not be the wisest thing for me to exercise it. But, right? I mean, I learned this long ago as, a, as an athlete in terms of trying to condition myself and hone my skills. I mean, I had freedom to eat a lot of different things. I had freedom not to work out as I did, but there were so many things that I limited by my own choice voluntarily because of the greater goal to get in shape, to get into condition, to be at the the top of my craft. So it's obvious if that's my goal, that's going to determine many of the life choices that I make, and it should be the same way in the Christian life. So here are four questions you should ask in, in terms of exercise before you exercise liberty. The first question is very obvious. Will this be personally profitable? If I exercise this liberty that I believe I have in Christ, will it be profitable to me in my spiritual development? Look at 1 Corinthians 6.12. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. And again, let me just pause right there. In this context, in the context of 1 Corinthians 6, he's not saying anything goes. Again, there are many commands, there are many moral absolutes and laws that are clear, binding upon every believer. In, that, in this context, he's talking, again, about these areas where God's given freedom, where preferential, preferential issues, where we do come to different positions. So he says, all things are lawful, but it's not all necessarily profitable. In the Greek, look at that now, look at that next statement. In the Greek, profitable, that word profitable means to carry together or to cooperate. The word pictures, the actual word used pictures a traveler progressing on a journey. A thing is profitable if it helps him arrive at the desired destination. Therefore, I must ask, will engaging in the activity draw me closer to Christ, or will it be a roadblock to my Christian development? You hear me? Again, just like that analogy I gave of being an athlete. I I was so committed back in those years uh, to being that athlete, top of his craft, that every decision was made in light of that. Every, will this profit? When I, at that time, I didn't know Christ. I mean, sports was my God. But the analogy is, is, is a good one. And saying the same thing here is, I might have freedom, and yes, I can exercise that freedom, but is it really going to be profitable? It, it, because my ultimate goal as a believer is what? To become like Jesus. To finish the work that he's given me here on earth to do. So will exercising this freedom, exercising this liberty? Is it going to take me further down that goal? If God's goal is to make me like Jesus, to learn to love as He loved, maybe there's some things I need to limit in order to express my love to other people, to maintain unity in the family of God for the witness of God's kingdom. Look at the second question. Will it be enslaving? Look at the latter part of verse 12, that 1 Corinthians 6 passage. All things are lawful for me, yes, but I will not be mastered by anything. Simply put, look at the next statement in your notes. Simply put, a Christian should not be controlled by any other master but Jesus. When an apparently innocent, legitimate, or proper thing becomes master, it is no longer innocent, legitimate, or proper. If any activity monopolizes a believer's time to the point 
that it destroys or replaces his appetite for the things of God, it's time to limit his liberty. So nothing challenges God as the master passion of his life. And again, it may not be giving up that liberty, but exercising it in moderation. You know, going back to the sports. I still love to be involved in sports. I, I love going to the gym. But even that has to be done in moderation. My greater goal now is godliness, Christ-likeness. Yes, I want to stay in shape, but I need to be careful that I don't become so overwhelmed with that that it distracts or displaces my appetite for God. Look at the next question. This is very applicable to uh, our message today. I need to ask, will it be helpful or harmful to others? If I exercise this liberty... Will it be helpful or harmful to others? All things are lawful, he says in 1 Corinthians 10, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. And it's interesting. Let me read the verses right after. He gives an illustration of what he's talking about. And he goes back to this issue of eating meat. And listen to what he says. Now, this is right after those verses, what, what we just read. He says... So you may eat any meat that is sold in the marketplace without raising questions of conscience. Okay? For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If someone who is not a believer asks you home for dinner, accept the invitation if you want. Eat whatever is offered to you without raising questions of conscience. But suppose someone tells you, in other words, this would be another believer that he would have already also invited to his house and say, so you're there with this fellow believer in this unbeliever's house, and the unbeliever says, this meat was offered to an idol. Don't eat it out of consideration for the conscience of the one who told you. It might not be a matter of conscience for you, but it is for the other person. Look at Romans 14, verses 15 and 21, which are in your notes. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. Now, look there at that next statement. The word edify means to build up. In other words, I must be willing to go beyond asking, hey, is this okay for me? To will involvement in this activity help others in their Christian walk. All our decisions must be evaluated in the light of their effect on others. All you parents can understand this. You have freedoms and liberties that every day you limit because you're raising a small child and he wouldn't have the maturity to maybe to handle that subject matter or to handle that sharp knife or whatever it might be. You recognize where they are, and you limit liberty to meet them where they are and to, and to grow them. And then the last question, will it glorify God? Will it glorify God? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In other words, I must ask, not only will I enjoy it, but will Jesus. In other words, Jesus, my heart is His home. Where I go, he goes. What I participate in, he participates in. So it's not only will I enjoy it, will Jesus enjoy it? Will his love be evident through me as I participate 
in this? Will his attitude be seen in me? Will his character be displayed through me? So that is what love does. What love does is to pursue the things that bring us to peace and harmony, the building up of one another. And then look at Romans 15, 1 through 7, what love produces, what love produces. And the one another passage that sort of captures the heart of this section is verse 7, the last verse. Therefore, accept one another. How? Just as Christ accepted us to the glory of God. Several things, notice. First, verses 1 through 3, which could be summed up this way, is a willingness, there must be a willingness on my part to give up my rights to help others. And I must do so with a Christ-like attitude, seeing people not as burdens to endure, but blessings to encourage. And sometimes they are burdens to endure. Again, go back to the parent-child analogy. Sometimes it is burdensome to raise a child, right? And it can be difficult to endure some of those trials. But what overshadows that is what? You see those little ones as blessings that God has entrusted to you as a stewardship for you to encourage, for them to discover their God-given destiny. And it should be no different within the family of God. We should never view ourselves as burdens to endure one another, but blessings to encourage. Uh, Let me read those verses. We who are strong must be considered of those who are sensitive about things like this. We must not just please ourselves. We should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. Now notice, here's balance. A believer that has a very narrow view that doesn't see his freedom in Christ, we don't want to leave them there. I mean, the problem is they haven't seen their freedom. And so they need to be challenged, but in the right way. That's, that's the issue here. The issue is attitude. The issue is that I don't hold this brother in contempt, disdain. I go to him and I say, I love you. I love you so much, you're more important to me than this issue, whether I exercise it or not. But I love you so much, I want you to see the freedom that you have in Christ. And you work. And you may or may not resolve the issue. I don't know. But whether you do or not, the point is you don't stop loving them. You don't let the issue cause division in your relationship or within the family, in the family of of God. It says, for even Christ didn't live to please himself. As the Scripture says, the insults of those who insult you, all, O God, have fallen on me. Look at verses 4 through 6. It could be summed up. Reliance on God's Word and prayer uh, provide the perseverance and encouragement needed to maintain unity in the midst of diversity and to demonstrate a love that is greater than our differences. This is not easy. This is one of the greatest challenges in the Christian life. This message is not for babies. it's, It's for the mature. Uh, it, it, because th- this, this is a tough one where we're saying, you know, my rights are not the issue. It, it's love ruling supreme within the family of God uh, for the glory of God and for the witness uh, of, of, the, of the church. And let me read these verses. Such things were written in the Scriptures long ago to teach us. And the Scriptures give us what? Hope and encouragement as we wait, what? Patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. It requires patience. We need to be patient with one another. God's not finished with us. None of us have arrived. We all have blind spots. We all have prejudices and issues that God's dealing with. And again, we need to give God the room to do that and not criticize and condemn uh, one another. 
He said, may God who gives this patience and encouragement help you live in complete harmony with each other as is fitting for followers of Christ. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And then that next point, I'm picking up on that verse I just read once again. One voice, this is what love produces. One voice giving glory and thanksgiving to God for what unites us and minimizing what divides us. Then all of you can join together with one voice, one voice, one voice. To do what? To give praise and glory to God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we have unity and harmony. And then that last point, acceptance of one another as Christ accepted us. That's what love produces. Acceptance of one another as Christ accepted us. Verse 7, therefore accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given glory. And how did Jesus accept you? Unconditionally. God doesn't love you any more right now than he's ever loved you. He will not all love you less right now any more than he ever. He loves you, and his love is never failing. His love will never let you go. And that's the love we need to demonstrate to one another. Now, let me sum up this message with three points. This is not in your sermon notes, but these are three points that might just be very easy to be able to get a hold of. Number one, it just comes down to this. I want to try to make this very simple. If God has accepted you as his son or daughter, then I'm obligated to accept and love you as my brother or sister. We are family. We are family. And we are to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, as we mentioned, give preference to one another in honor and have that mind of Christ towards one another. We need to understand that God is more interested in love between members of his family than the inerrancy of our opinions on non-essential or preferential issues. Amen? Second point, in any disagreement, as important as being right on the issue, is maintaining the right spirit with one another. We must learn to disagree without becoming disagreeable from God's experience perspective, from his perspective, the most important issue in any controversy, especially in these areas of non-essentials, preferential issues, is not who's right, but maintaining the right spirit with one another. Not letting it destroy our love, but seeing it as an opportunity to build our love for one another, to learn a love greater than our differences. And then the third thing, when believers separate, when believers separate over non-essential issues, Listen now, the error of the division is greater than any supposed error on the issue. And we must realize the main reason for the division is not our disagreement on the issue, but our failure to mature in agape love, our failure to love. So that's what Paul is saying in Romans 14. The issue really is not a meat issue, it's a love issue. It's your attitude towards one another. Matter of fact, God has allowed the differences. I'm convinced of this. In other words, among believers that are totally surrendered to God, filled with the Holy Spirit, their greatest passion is to love Him, be like Him, and to follow Him. Why does God allow these differences to arise? I've come to one conclusion to give us an opportunity to learn an unconditional love 
towards one another. Let me close with this, and this is what I will close with. I won't read the whole thing, but I found this, and it's, it is fascinating. This is a poem that Charles Wesley, you know who John and Charles Wesley were? Uh, this is a poem Charles wrote, the great hymn writers. Brother was the great evangelist and revivalist John. He wrote this poem to George Whitfield. Now, this is dealing with a doctrinal matter, but, but the principles rely. I'll just tell you what the issue was, and if you understand what these issues are, fine. If not, that's fine. That's not the point. Whitfield was a Calvinist. The Wesley brothers were not, doctrinally. They were the closest friends. They co-labored together in, in God's field, working to advance God's kingdom. They, they couldn't have been closer. They couldn't have loved one another more. But they let this issue, they let this difference divide them. And they went through a period of time where they attacked one another, attacked one another in their preaching and teaching and from the, the pulpit. But God reconciled these men. They never reconciled their differences. They went to their grave with the differences. But they went to their grave loving one another unconditionally. And Charles Wesley wrote this poem to Whitfield when God brought them out of that spirit of judgment, condemning, attacking, fighting, and brought them to a place of love. Again, he actually calls this an epistle, and it is an epistle. That's why I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll read you pieces of it. Wesley says, come on, my Whitfield, since the strife is past, and friends at first are friends again at last. Our hands and hearts and counsels, let us join in mutual league to advance the work divine. Our one contention now, our single aim, to pluck poor souls as brands out of the flame, to spread the victory of the bloody cross and gasp our latest last breath in the Redeemer's cause. Too long, alas, we gave to Satan place when party zeal put on an angel's face. Too long we listened to the deceiving fiend whose trumpet sounded for the faith contend. With hasty blindfold raids in error's night, how did we with our fellow soldiers fight? We could not then our father's children know, but each mistook, mistook his brother as his foe. Foes to the truth, can your conscience spare? Tear them, the tempter cried, in pieces tear. So thick the darkness, so confused the noise, we took the strangers for the shepherd's voice. Rash nature waved the controversial sword on fire to fight the battles of the Lord. Fraternal love from every breast was driven and bleeding charity returned to heaven. The Savior saw our strife with pitying eye and cast a look that made the shadows fly. Soon as the day spring in his presence shone, we found the two fierce armies were but one. Common our hope and family and name, our arms, our captain, and our crown the same. Enlisted all beneath Emmanuel's sign and purchased every soul with blood divine. Then let us cordially again embrace 
nor e'er infringe the league of gospel grace. Let us in Jesus' name to battle go and turn our arms against the common foe. Fight side by side beneath our captain's eye. Chase the Philistines on their shoulders fly and more than conquerors in the harness die. And I love this. And you'll appreciate this if you know the issue of Calvinism versus sort of Arminianism. For whether I am born to blush above on earth suspicious of electing love, or you, referring to Whitfield, overwhelmed with honorable shame to shout the universal Savior's name, it matters not if all our conflicts past, before the great white throne we meet at last, our only care while sojourning below, our real faith by real love to show. To blast the aliens' hope and let them see how friends of jarring sentiment agree. Not in parties narrow, banks confined, not by a sameness of opinion joined, but cemented with the Redeemer's blood and bound together in the heart of God. One in his hand, oh wait, may we still remain, fast bound with love's indissoluble chain. And I'll close with this last line. His love, the tie that binds us to his throne. His love, the bond that perfects us in one. Amen. So may God give us the grace here at Edgewood Baptist Church to know a love for one another that's greater than our differences, that we will not be guilty in these preferential areas, non-essential areas of faith, We won't be guilty of judging one another, condemning, criticizing one another. But we will give ourselves to pursuing what? Peace, harmony, building up one another, and producing a love to where we are devoted to one another, giving preference to one another, and expressing the mind of Christ towards one another. As the invitation is extended today, I trust God has spoken. And... uh, then this might be an area that you've been struggling with. And I, if it is, I trust God has provided you some guidance, provide you some direction. And uh, maybe it's changed your perspective. And just acknowledge that before God and, uh, and commit yourself to walk uh, in love. But I'll be here to greet anyone that has a decision of any nature. Possibly you've been coming to the church and desiring to be a part of this church family. We'd love to have you. We'd love to love on you. And so we would invite you to make your way down the aisle and express that desire to me just to get your face before the church family so that we can begin loving on you. And then we'll take you through the full process of membership. Or if you've recently made a public profession of faith, that you would come forward acknowledging Christ, your Savior and Lord. But I trust that we'll all respond to this message and truth we've heard today with a renewed commitment to love one another despite all differences. Amen. Please stand as the invitation is extended.